As we stand, let's pray together. Lord, speak to me that I may speak. Yes, Father, we pray that as we hear your word, you would move our hearts to love you and that you would move our lips to praise and proclaim you in your world. For your glory. Amen. Uh, Well, do take a seat uh, and do turn up uh, Matthew chapter 10, uh, page 975, as we spend some time uh, thinking about these verses. I wonder what was your reaction to the two readings we had from Matthew's Gospel. Did you notice how the one ended and the other began? At chapter 27, they spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes. Then they led him away to crucify him. Matthew 10, a student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Really? Is that the way we think? My guess is that if we're Christians here today, we're happy to say we want to be like Jesus when we're talking about our inner godliness. Great, we want to be moulded by God into the likeness of Christ. We'll join with the Apostle Paul In the first half of Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But we're not so sure about the second half. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Do we want to be like our master in that way? Is that what we want for Annabelle and Lucy as they're brought up to be Christians? Is that what we had in mind when we prayed for them, that they would be Christ's faithful soldiers and servants to the end of their lives? That's what we said. You see, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that we will share his sufferings if we do the work of evangelism, if we tell others about him. Have a look with me again at the context of these. At the end of chapter 9, verse 36, we see this. Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into his harvest field. The crowds are like sheep without a shepherd. And so we saw last time that Jesus sends out the twelve apostles to share in his proclamation. And yet amidst all the excitement of that task he makes the startling statement verse 16 I am sending you out like sheep among wolves and so he explains that as they share in his proclamation so too they will share his persecution and surely the natural reaction to news like that would be to fear to be afraid of what might happen That's why in our verses today, Jesus gives them reasons not to be afraid. It's the thrust of the whole section. See verse 26, so do not be afraid of them. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those. Verse 31, so don't be afraid. And we will do well to listen in. Because isn't fear one of the big reasons why we don't talk of Jesus? There are other reasons. 
It might be that we just don't share Jesus' compassion for the lost. We see the crowds. We see a world full of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And our reaction is to leave them to it. We might not share Jesus' compassion. We might not share Jesus' conviction that the kingdom of heaven is near. We're not sure enough on the gospel ourselves to think that we must proclaim it in the world. But I'm sure that for many of us, fear is the real reason. Perhaps the fear of the unknown. I don't know how people react. Perhaps the fear of failure. It won't make any difference. What's the point? Perhaps the fear of consequences. It might cost me a relationship. Uh, my reputation. And as those fears strengthen in our minds, they paralyze us so that we hide away from the world. We hide our faith in conversation. We remain silent with the people with whom we are closest. We bite our tongues, to start with at least, because soon enough we don't even need to do that. And when we do speak of Jesus, we end up tongue-tied and awkward and embarrassed but Jesus says do not be afraid do not be afraid of them do not fear those who are hostile and he knows that we need more than just some stirring words a sort of chin up speech no if we are going to be fearless then Jesus needs to change the way we tick he needs to change our world around before we will change the world around. And he does so by tackling each of our fears in turn. So first, verse 24 and 25, he tackles our fear of the unknown. I don't know how people will react, we might say. I'm not sure what sort of response to expect, to which Jesus says, verse 25, if the head of the household has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? Unknown? Not a bit of it, says Jesus. That the world will treat Christians the same way it treated him. He set the pattern. Do you realise that? Of course, there will be those who respond to the message, who turn to Christ as their Saviour and Lord, and it is wonderful when they do. It is for them that we proclaim it. But you can't do it without the world noticing. We don't even know who they are yet, the people God has chosen. And so we will share in the suffering of Jesus. It's not unknown. It is inevitable. All of which, at first sight, doesn't seem massively encouraging, does it? I'm worried because I don't know what sort of reaction I'll have. Don't worry, says Jesus. It'll be a bad one. But do you notice the first word of verse 26? If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household, so do not be afraid of them. Perhaps we would expect it to say, but do not be afraid of them, or nevertheless do not be afraid of them. But it doesn't, it says so. Verse 25 is a reason not to have fear. I think that for me at least, there are two ways in which this does tackle my fears. 
The first is that it removes the unknown. It brings everything out into the daylight. Often it is the unseen and the unexpected that we fear, isn't it? And that's why children don't like the dark. And when you turn the light on for them, there may be a spider in the middle of the floor. But once you can see it and know where it is, it's not nearly so scary. Well, so too here. If I know that opposition will come to the church when it proclaims Christ, then it isn't pleasant, but it's not unexpected. And it won't throw me off course. I won't think I've done the wrong thing. I'll be ready to face it and not fear it. So it removes the unknown, but but the second reason why this drives out fear is because I know that I'm following Jesus. I am the student and he is the teacher. I am the servant and he is the master. I'm sharing in his sufferings and I know what his sufferings achieved. His death on the cross is actually the greatest victory in history. He may have been mocked, but now he is magnified. He may have been crucified, but now he is crowned. And so if I follow him, if I follow his path of suffering, then I know where it leads. As Paul says in Romans 8, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Do you fear the unknown? Does it stop you from speaking to others about Jesus? Well then, do not fear, he says. Expect opposition. It's just normal. And remember that when we follow Jesus into suffering, we follow him all the way through to share in his glory. Well, the next verses tackle the fear of failure. The fear that it won't make any difference. My friend will never change. I've spoken to them to them before and it didn't do any good then why bother now do you ever think like that it's hard enough at the individual scale isn't it that the person you know with whom conversation is always so difficult it can be even worse when we think about the big scale Uh, think of the population of the city of Sheffield over half a million people and then we realise that our church is like a pinprick How will people ever hear? But, says Jesus, verse 26, do not be afraid of them. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. You see, the truth will out. Those who malign the gospel will not have the last word. For a day is coming, Jesus says, a day when everything will be laid bare. And a day when every person will bow the knee before him. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Even those tongues that once denounced him as Beelzebub, the Lord of demons, will one day recognise him as Lord of all. So don't fear failure, says Jesus, because when we proclaim the gospel, we are proclaiming that Jesus is king. And even though today some people will deny it, one day they won't be able to deny it. So don't fear them. They're trying to suppress a truth that is unstoppable. 
They're trying to ignore a truth that one day will be undeniable. And so rather than fear what they think today, tell them what they will know then. When we tell people the gospel, we're just telling them the things that one day they will know for sure. Only then it will be too late. For that day of final revelation, that day of total acknowledgement of Jesus, is also the day of judgment. And those who fail to trust Jesus as their king will be barred from his kingdom. As verse 28 says, they will face the destruction of hell. It might be that you're here today and you know you're not a Christian. I wonder how you respond to Jesus' words here. They're not vitriolic, are they? They seem very measured. And yet there is a warning here for you. Because you can't deny a king forever. Now, I think many people think of Christianity as a sort of take-it-or-leave-it religion. It's up to us whether we decide to believe it or not. And there's a measure of truth in that. You do need to decide. And yet, if Jesus is king, if he is Lord of all, your decision won't change that. doesn't matter which way I, I go, one way or the other. He's still king. And if I decide wrongly, then one day I will still face him. That's why in verse 27 here, it urges those of us who do know him to shout it out. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Because people need to hear, and now is the time. And don't fear them. One day everyone will know the truth. And just as Jesus will be vindicated then, so too will his people. So fear of the unknown, fear of failure. And next we see the fear of consequences. The fear of what might happen to us when we speak of him. I don't know what exactly that fear is for you. I suspect that for most, our fears are to do with rejection of one sort or another. Perhaps we fear that if we persistently speak of Jesus, then our relationship with a friend or family member will will be spoiled. They'll start to resent us and then to ignore us. And with that will come the, the pain of loss. Perhaps we fear being the object of scorn and ridicule amongst our social circle or our colleagues. People are happy for us to be a Christian so long as we keep it to ourselves. But if we talk about it to them, we'll start being marginalised. Well, to that fear, Jesus says, don't be afraid, they can only kill you. Do you see that, verse 28? Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Now, at first sight, this is not massively comforting, is it? Uh, I mean, if we were abroad somewhere and came across a snake slithering toward us, and a local said, don't worry, that the worst that sort of snake can do is kill you, I would not be put at my ease. And yet, that is precisely what Jesus says here. He says, yes, they can kill your body, but don't be afraid because they can't kill your soul. I think to understand this, we have to realise that our fears 
are always linked to things that we value. Uh, So, really, everything we fear is a fear that we will lose something that we value. If we're worried about the the credit crunch at the moment, it's because we place a high value on our money, our security. If we have fears about illness, it's because we place a high value on our health, on living for a, a good few more years. If we're worried about telling others about Jesus, it's because we place a high value on things like how other people view us or the quality of our relationship with them or the absence of hostility from them. That's how it works. But, says Jesus, we have something far more valuable. Something of such value that if we will only fix our eyes on it, if we will only realise how great it is, it will displace all other values. And with it, it will drive out all those fears. Because Christians have Christ. We have eternal life with him, one for us on the cross, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. And if we have that, if we realise that, then who cares about other things? As Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, Just as if you had a million pounds in the bank, you wouldn't be too concerned about the credit crunch. So too, if you've got Jesus, if you know him, then all other difficulties will shrink into the background. Even death. That's a challenge. I don't know about you, but I find that when I do convince myself to tell others the gospel, it's because actually I persuade myself that nothing too bad will happen. It does in some places, I know, even this week. We've seen in the news of the murder of Gail Williams, a Christian aid worker in Afghanistan, shot dead because she was a Christian working among Muslims. It happens, but it happens over there. It doesn't really happen here, that's what I tell myself. I've even given a talk before challenging people that that although they might get some bad reactions when they tell people they are a Christian, uh, that it'll be no worse than if they told them they were a Morris dancer. I then found out that I was in a village famous for Morris dancing. But that is not what Jesus does here. He doesn't say, in most cases, it won't be too bad. No, he says this. He says, if you were so excited about eternity with me, if you valued that as you should, if it was your treasure, you wouldn't worry about other things. In around 400 AD, there was a man named John Chrysostom who was one of the the great preachers and evangelists of the early church. And he was on trial for his life for promoting Christ. And a record of some of the trial has survived. Uh, The Roman official in charge said to him, we will banish you. He replied, you cannot banish me, for the whole world is my father's home. Well then, we will execute you. You cannot. My life is hid with Christ. Then we will dispossess you of your estate. You cannot. I have not got any. All my treasure is in heaven. Well then, we will put you in solitary confinement. You cannot. For I have a divine friend from whom you can never separate me. 
I defy you. There is nothing you can do to hurt me. You see, if our heart is set on the Lord, every other fear will be driven out. And we will only be left with a fear of the Lord. Second half of verse 28 there. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, it may seem strange. Don't be afraid. Rather, be afraid. But the Bible often speaks about the fear of the Lord. It is the beginning of knowledge. It isn't to sit quaking, worried about what he will do. No, to fear God is to know what he will do. It is to act in light of his character, in light of his predictability, in light of his promises. It is to take God seriously. It came up a few weeks ago in the evening service and there I likened it to a football team's attitude towards their opponent's top striker. They might fear that player. It doesn't mean they sit in the changing rooms with their knees knocking. It doesn't mean that they don't know what he's going to do. No, they fear the player precisely because they do know what he'll do. They know that whenever he gets the ball, he'll more than likely score a goal. And what is more, they let that fear dictate what they do. Dictate the, the way they play the game. They'll devise their whole strategy to make sure that man is marked. They'll act in light of his ability. So that, I think, captures something of what it means to fear the Lord. It is to know him. It is to know his settled attitude, his certain promises, and to act in response. Uh, We'll see next week uh, some of what that means in practice in the verses that follow. But realise too that to fear the Lord is also to value him above everything else. That our greatest fear is to miss out on a relationship with him. It is a relationship in which we enjoy his loving care. That's why it's so valuable. Do you see verse 29, how, how these verses end? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Uh, the world may seem powerful, But actually, God is in control. We may face, we will face difficulty as we follow Jesus, but God is in control. We may think ourselves insignificant, but this God, who is in control, places enormous value on us. He knows us intimately, even numbering the hairs on our head. He even sends his own son to die for us. And so when we know that our relationship with him is secure, actually all fears will fade away. I wonder if that's why in verse 31 it doesn't say don't be afraid of them anymore. It just says don't be afraid. Because if we fear the Lord, if we value him above everything, then we'll have no other fears at all. And we will proclaim him fearlessly. Are we afraid? To speak of Jesus? Well, we won't be if we have these truths clear in our minds. uh, That we are to follow Jesus, sharing in his suffering, 
but heading for his glory. That the truth will come out in the end and every knee will bow. And that the one thing we should value the most is the very thing that no one can touch. And so we can be bold. I want to just picture in your minds what the fearless you would look like this coming week. What would the fearless you be like compared with the past seven days? I don't know who this week will bring you into contact with. Perhaps it's an unusual week. I know it's half term. For me, this week, uh, I'm going to be spending time with Helen's family over in Belfast. Some of them aren't believers. Uh, This passage has challenged me. We're as afraid as the next person. We find it very hard to talk to them about the Lord. But here I've had my thinking set straight. Well, you can ask me next week how it went when I'm back. But just as I finish, let me mention one other specific application for us all as a church family. It is this 1 plus 1 equals 2,000 initiative that Andrew mentioned. It's called that because if, as a church family, we're roughly 1,000 people at the moment, then if we all brought along one other person, there'd be 2,000 And so the whole of next year, we're going to have a big initiative to try to help each other to be fearless in speaking of the Lord. The launch evening for it is on Wednesday the 19th. Do come. There's still time to arrange a babysitter if you need one. There's time to rearrange another commitment if you've got one. But we want to be helping each other in this. This is going to set the agenda for for the whole of next year. Come along and capture the vision for as we launch it, Wednesday the 19th. We do want to be working together as a church family so that we are all, as individuals and as a group, reaching out fearlessly with the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Let me read out some words that we're about to sing. When faced with trials on every side, we know the outcome is secure. And Christ will have the prize for which he died, an inheritance of nations. Father, we thank you for your saving work. We thank you for your patience, not wanting any to be lost, but for all to come to repentance. And we thank you for our inheritance with you, safe and secure. May we value it above all. And may we speak of it to all. For Jesus' sake. Amen.